Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Alec Klein. He's a journalist, an investigator, and a writer. Uh, He's worked at the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. He has a new book entitled Aftermath, What It Felt Like When Life Was Over. Welcome, Mr. Klein. Uh, thanks for having me. All right. You were at academia as well. You were at Northwestern University uh, running really a remarkable project there entitled the Medill Justice Project. What was that? Well, Mark, the short version is that uh, it was a center investigating wrongful convictions and false accusations. And uh, we were blessed to have helped uh, many people regain their freedom after they had been uh, charged with or convicted of uh, various crimes, primarily murder. Uh, and uh, so the focus of, was on investigating these cases and trying to help people who needed help, people who were uh, voiceless, if you will, and out of options. I, I can hardly imagine a better sort of way to learn the craft of investigative journalism than this project. Did a lot of the students pass through and go right into strong investigative journalism careers? Many of them did. Um, I I hope it was a wonderful experience for for them. I can tell you that uh, it really put them in a remarkable situation. The students were able to, in many cases, uncover revelatory information that uh, pointed to the innocence of uh, of various inmates. And in some cases, it uh, led to their freedom. It's a, it's a, it's like getting hit by lightning to uncover, you know, the key evidence that uh, exonerates somebody who had been wrongfully convicted. I mean, this happened on multiple occasions. And every time it happened, I have to tell you, it was a um, very humbling experience to see someone, you know, walking through the prison gates free after they were finally set free from a crime that they hadn't commit- committed. Or in other cases, you know, finding the key uh, evidence that had been hidden from uh, the inmate that uh, would have uh, helped them during their case. Uh, or in other cases where we found the key eyewitness who really saw what happened, the murder, and was able to recount to us what had happened. So for the students, you know, they, were, they did amazing work, uh, and uh, many of them did uh, launch careers in journalism. So I hope it was helpful to them. But uh, in my mind, whenever you can help uh, anyone uh, with a situation like this, it's worthwhile. Uh, but uh, heavy lifting for the students. You know, we were 
tracking down witnesses, uh, going through court records, knocking on doors, uh, a lot of um, very complicated and nuanced um, investigative reporting. Now, there's a bitter irony here, then we're going to get into the story, uh, an irony in that you were teaching fundamentals of, of innocent until proven guilty, uh, compiling evidence sufficient to warrant uh, a conviction, and showing some, some proper, as a journalist, some proper skepticism of, of, of you know, one line of, of evidence or, or testimony, for instance, uh, because something happened. And before you tell us, I wanted to read a couple paragraphs from the book so our listeners get a feel for, for the mood. What do you do when you feel like your life is over? For several months, my answer, plant my head face first into the fibers of the dining room rug. As I lie for hours at a stretch next to a snoring Rosie, your dog. This pose was aided by a heavy dosage of Xanax. And alcohol, which, according to the fine print, would give me seizures, death, or a deep slumber. I was left with the latter. Uh, You then refer to, quote, The attacks, the shock, the disgrace, the abandonment, the anguish, the loss, the spiraling into nothingness. Okay, what happened? Well, you know, I spent many years uh, investigating wrongful convictions. and, And you're right, a lot of it is grounded in understanding that uh, you don't. There's no rush to judgment, right? That uh, you must gather the facts, you must corroborate the facts, you must be sure to make sure you understand what happened, and and that's uh, fundamental of. I was about to say investigative reporting, but all journalism, really. But anyway, so I spent many years doing this, um, and prior to running the center and uh, investigating wrongful convictions, this was my career as an investigative reporter at the Washington Post, but. Uh, Suddenly, I found myself on the other side. I was um, accused at the height of the uh, Me Too movement in 2018 of uh, mistreating and, and harassing some of my students and staffers. And uh, it, this was an attack that was uh, led by an employee whom I had let go, and uh, she had been trying to take me down for many years. But um, I think what's relevant here is that what was put out in the public domain and on the Internet was uh, wildly false. Uh, If you were to look at some of these things online, you'd get sort of the impression that this had something to do with some sort of, you know, sexual harassment. But none of the complaints, none of the complaints of the university had anything to do with any kind of uh, sexual interaction. The complaints were uh, a hodgepodge of things. for instance, a student, several of the complaints were from students, former students who uh, uh, were complaining about their grades. So, you know, one student uh, wanted a an A minus instead of a B plus, and I actually promptly gave her the A minus. But seven plus years later, she was still mad about it. Uh, there were several students who filed complaints about the chair that they sat in in my office at the university, I had a small futon chair that my little children would sit in when they came by my office to color. And, um, but uh, several of the students who filed complaints said that this chair was slightly lower to the ground than my chair. And they used the same term in their complaints. They called it a uh, power differential. 
uh, and that uh, they didn't like the fact that I was slightly higher to the ground, uh, above the ground than they were. Although I have to say, you know, if you've ever worked with or interacted with college students, you can't make them sit in any particular chair. They're going to sit where they want to sit. And of course, there were other chairs in my office, though, after I heard about this, um, about this complaint about the chair, I proceeded to dump it in a dumpster. Uh, and there was just to give you one third example, there was a student who said that I mocked her foreign accent while on a reporting trip to Florida. Uh, first of all, my mother speaks with a foreign accent, but beyond that, I checked my records and um, it turned out I wasn't on the, the that trip to Florida when she said that I was mocking her foreign accent. But none of this really matters, Mark, because when you are attacked uh, through digital stoning online, uh, through, you know, what I consider cancel culture, it doesn't matter. It's just the accusations themselves. It's it's guilt by accusation. It's not anything more than that, really. In the end, uh, I was not sanctioned. Uh, I was never fired. I voluntarily resigned after going through this uh, for, for many, many months because it was such a traumatic ordeal for my family. My father, in the midst of this, tried to kill himself. Um, there was terrible trauma to my own children, which I um, would prefer not to discuss to protect them. But uh, And I myself, of course, during all of this, um, didn't, didn't want to live. And uh, it's, 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 a, it's a horrible thing that is hard to describe to people who may not understand what it's like to be canceled. But I can tell you that having experienced it, it's sort of like a 360 suffocation, where on the one hand, your entire career has been uh, obliterated in, in an instant. And then on the other hand, other hand, you are totally, utterly destroyed socially. So you're a, a pariah in your own community. It's, it's, you can't escape from it because it's on the internet, wherever you go and everything falls away. You know, your friends, your, your career, uh, in my case, you know, there were, uh, the, my therapist had, you know, abandoned me, um, you know, lawyers, uh, uh, you know, uh, my literary agent, it would go on and on. It's, it's like you lose everything in an instant. Well, well, Alec, I have to say that I was surprised when I got further into your book because I, I actually remember seeing some stories about you uh, passing over, you know, the, the education journalism media. And when I read about the, the, the tactics of the university and your accusers, and then when you finally got to the actual accusations, even if, I mean, I was expecting something so much worse. I was expecting, you know, some quid pro pro sex uh, allegations, uh, or maybe even just, you know, one of those fuzzy things where a professor and a student, they do get involved, but it's, it's, it's a little confusing. There was maybe some, some seduction on both sides in some way, but it ended badly, and it just, it, there wasn't even that. I mean, these, these accusations were, didn't even come close to what we usually heard in the Me Too kind of thing. No, n nothing, nothing even remotely close to any of that ever occurred. Um, in fact, uh, just to add more to that point, um, many of the accusers, you know, went on TV and radio and print and online to further their attacks. And one of them, uh, this was a student whom I actually don't really remember, but from I think about 
nine or 10 years earlier, she said that I had told her a story that she viewed as some, I guess, some sort of sexual harassment. And, and the story, just in brief, Mark, is that I used to tell the story to some of my students as a kind of a, a cautionary tale to, you know, sort of inspire them to do, you know, to pursue their dreams and not be afraid and that sort of thing. And the story was about how when I was in college, uh, you know, uh, many moons ago, you know, there was a, a girl that I liked. Um, and um, one day I had a, a Hershey's kiss in my pocket and this girl didn't know it, that I had this Hershey's kiss. And I said to her, you know, would you like to kiss? And she turned to me and said, yes, but I was too afraid to do anything about it. So I tossed her the Hershey's kiss <laughs> and, right. and forever regretted that moment. And I remember talking to my attorney, one of my attorneys about this at the time of the attacks. I said, gosh, is that like a, you know, a form of sexual harassment? He said, no, that there's nothing of a sexual nature that actually occurred in that story. It was the opposite. Nothing happened. But um, but yeah, there, there were it, the, the uh, attacks were kind of um, hard to fathom. Really? Uh, I mean, I mean did the attacks on that until he was he was he was gruff. He was a little bullying sometimes. He was hard. He. Well, could I could I actually address that point? So I know that, that that some of them said this, but I have to tell you that you probably know this, but professors are subjected to anonymous evaluations, and you have absolutely no idea who's saying what because it's all after the class is over. You've already uh, provided grades for the students, but then they they can say whatever they want, and it's something of a free for all. So I had a decade of this uh, at Northwestern, and another five years of anonymous evaluations at other universities. Never, not once over those 15 years, was I ever uh, accused by any student of mistreating them in any way or being mean to them at all. If, if, if anything, it was the opposite. These anonymous evaluations were overwhelmingly positive. In fact, I, I would probably venture to say they were among the highest rated uh, anonymous evaluations at the university. Um, and I, I can tell you that's impossible if you are somehow being mean or mistreating students, because they will actually eviscerate you online in these anonymous evaluations if you're, if you're in fact mean to them. But I, it, that wasn't the case. But so, yeah, I, I realized that some of that was put online, but it, it was wildly false. And in fact, even my staffers who worked with me would castigate me for being too easy on students. They'd say, gosh, you gotta, you know, be tougher on them. And I, but I, I you know, I felt that as a professor that, you know, the role was to, to guide them. But, um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, uh, it's um, part of the insanity of the whole situation. So given all of this, Northwestern received these, these complaints and said, you got to be kidding. And they dropped the whole thing and, and, and moved on, correct? Well, so let me it's sort of <laughs> in two parts. <laughs> it's also complicated, but, but it's important, I think, to note this. Uh, back in 20, I think it was 15, there was a, an administrative assistant who worked for the center that I ran. This, this assistant did not report to me. She reported to somebody else, but she was on what's called a corrective action plan, which means that she was in jeopardy of being fired for poor, poor performance. But before she, I guess, I guess she was concerned she was going to get fired, uh, although that was, uh, I don't think that was in the plan, but she uh, abruptly resigned uh, and then turned around and accused me of, sexual harassment. The university investigated this by interviewing, I don't know how many uh, current and former students and staffers, but many. And they actually discovered that this secretary had lied uh, about me. And I'm not really sure how they discovered all these lies, but they found it. And then they ruled against her and in fact told her that she wasn't even uh, permitted to apply for a job at the university again, given 
what had happened in her false accusations. And further, the university then went out and uh, reached out to all the people that it had interviewed as a part of this investigation to let them know that I had done nothing wrong and that they were just to keep this confidential. Now, fast forward three years later, when uh, at the height of the Me Too movement, the former employee put out this all this information on the Internet, it was largely based on this administrative assistant from 2015. Uh, and so. First of all, the, the former employee knew the accusations to be false because she had been informed that the, the university had already investigated these matters from 2015. But she put out all of this false information anyway. And, but what's even more, I think, kind of troubling is that the university didn't lift a finger when all of this uh, false information was put out in 2018, even though they had investigated the matter in 2015, knew these things to be false, and then actually ruled against the accuser for her false allegations. They didn't lift a finger, even as I was being utterly uh, digitally stoned uh, online about it in, in 2018. If you could be in the room when Northwestern was conceiving how to respond to this this other person who's using a discredited older person's allegations, sort of reviving them and then adding something of her own. What 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 was the conclusion? What was Northwestern doing? I can add one more sort of dimension to this kind of situation, which was that right before the accusers took it to the media and made it a public sort of um, scrum, if you will, the university had an investigator who had... Um, uh, received some of the same sort of complaints from this accuser, this former employee. And the uh, university investigator actually called me in to speak with her, and she said that none of the accusations, even if true, and this is almost verbatim, she said none of the accusations, even if true, uh, rise to the level of a policy violation. And she sort of described, you know, she said, so, you know, basically I'm putting this in the proverbial file, I'm closing the drawer, and you'll never hear from me again. Well, literally, you turn around and once these accusations were put out in the media, suddenly that very same investigator and the university started to investigate, even though they had already concluded that this was uh, mounted to nothing. So I, I knew at that point that this was not going to end well, you know, because they were trying to just protect their, their own interests at that point. Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas, and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. Now, you, you had to get an attorney, and what you said earlier and what I read in the book is uh, your, 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 lawyers, uh, your, your lawyers abandoned you. Now, I would think that in this situation, a lawyer would be salivating to take your case. Well, I got to tell you, Mark, there were, I had multiple lawyers, um, and um, I was, I have to say, I was woefully shocked at how 
terrible they were, uh, generally speaking. And in one instance, you know, I had hired uh, an attorney to um, uh, help uh, represent me in this matter. But and he, he readily, you know, took the case and lots of my money to do so. But then uh, came back to me sometime later and said, well, you know, as it turns out, I can't really do what you're asking me to do because the, his own firm, his own law firm was worried about blowback, uh, public blowback, you know, given the heated nature of Me Too. And so, you know, it was kind of shocking because uh, you, you, you realize that when you're thrown into this sort of cauldron of a situation involving cancel culture, it's, you know, you're, you're sort of defenseless in many ways. You're kind of left out there to hang out to dry. And uh, it, it's kind of like a, a hurricane where, you know, no matter what you do in that moment, it's, it's there's little that you can actually do at that time. Uh, but that's that was uh, what I experienced, uh, which was that, um, you know, as I said, it's built by accusation. I, I thought that legal ethics and actually relative to your therapist, that that psychological psychotherapy ethics would not allow them just to take off. Maybe I'm wrong, uh, but I got to tell you, I had the same uh, reaction, which was, you know, when I was you know, suicidal and barely hanging on. I was shocked that um, my therapist uh, abandoned me. And I, I, you know, I have to say that, you know, when you're really up against it and, you know, at one point or another, we all go through, I think, some level of suffering. But, you know, when you're when you're in the middle of the storm, um, a lot of people run for cover and they are afraid of, you know, somehow getting uh, tarnished by an association. There's one exception here, uh, Alec, because academics are some of the most courageous, intrepid, individualistic, principled creatures. So they all, I understand that there was a gigantic faculty movement at Northwestern to defend you. Is that correct? No, uh, it was actually, (laughs) there was, um, (laughs) so shortly after the attack uh, became a, sort of a press matter, a media matter, um, a, a number of uh, professors of journalism, of all people, put out a public letter of sympathy to the accusers, even though these professors knew not a single fact about what was happening, uh, which was sort of shocking just because we teach our students as journalism professors to, you know, check the facts. Uh, to confirm the details to make sure you know what you're talking about before you put something out. But that didn't happen here. In this case, it was a rush to judgment. I'd actually say beyond even the professors who, uh, without checking the facts, were uh, putting out a letter of sympathy to the accusers, there were students whom I had not taught and did not know who were jumping on the bandwagon. And some set of them uh, created a template on, uh, I believe it was Facebook, in which they said, this is how you can file a complaint about this guy, this professor, just fill in the blanks. And I have to tell you, uh, my, my then wife, you know, she was uh, very supportive of me during this whole process, this uh, ordeal. But she thought that that was shocking because she said that uh, she actually, uh, these are, I don't mean to borrow her words, but she said, imagine the equivalent of a billboard put up somewhere and said, OK, you don't like this person here's a way to complain about them because that was an invitation to do so. 
Uh, and then there were other students who, whom I, again, I didn't uh, know, hadn't taught, who started a petition drive to ha have me ousted. But again, you know, this is all sort of this fervor, this happens where there's no due process, where it's, you know, people are just salivating to take somebody down. They, they believe the accusations, even though they know none of the facts. And it's it's alarming, you know, just generally speaking, not, not for my own situation, but for, for all of us, really, because anybody could be accused of anything uh, and you could throw it online. One thing that did surprise me a bit is that in terms of Northwestern's and your reaction, the Justice Project was very successful. And you came in at a time when it was really kind of dying. Your predecessor did not have a very good record with it. One would think that given the, the prestige, the publicity, probably, probably the donation that Northwestern earned from your work at the Justice Project, that they wouldn't be so eager to, to abandon you. Well, you know, it's true that um, when they asked me to take over the center, it was in jeopardy of collapse because of the ethics scandal that the prior uh, professor had been embroiled in. And I took it over out of loyalty to the university and because I realized how important it was not only to the university, but to students who experienced uh, this uh, uh, process of investigating wrongful convictions. It was important to the faculty. And, um, you know, so when I took it over, uh, we were able to uh, build it from a essentially a local organization to a national one. And in fact, we had international visitors from all points of the world who would come to visit dignitaries to learn about what we did. We uh, we won all sorts of um, major uh, national journalism awards for the work that we did. And aside from that, we helped to set people free who had been wrongfully convicted. So it was uh, very much a big deal. In fact, there was always a waiting list uh, for students to even take the class. Um, so I have to say that, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I thought it was a good thing for the university. And one of the tragedies of the attack on me was that the center itself uh, collapsed along with me. And, you know, we had actually uh, raised millions of dollars um, in donations as a result of the work that we did as well. But so once they attacked me, in some ways, they really hurt the very people who needed the help the most, which were not just the students who took the class, the professors who took pride in it, the university that promoted it, it was, you know, the, the considered the crown jewel of the university, but it all went away. And, um, you know, it's, it's a terrible thing because actually even the staffers who lost their jobs as a result of the attack on me, these were uh, uh, some wonderful uh, individuals, former students and others, uh, women in, as well as men. And in fact, much of the work that we did involved helping uh, women in particular. So, there's, you know, kind of great irony about the whole situation because, you know, I, I, by the way, had raised my own daughter to be a feminist and she had, you know, she has Rosie the, the Riveter in her room to this very day, I think. And so, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, it was a terrible thing that it, that it all went away in my opinion. But again, I, you know, I had no choice in the matter. I was the, the, the target of the attack. Um, and that's, um, but that was one of the consequences. One other thing, your literary agent abandoned you and your book contracts with, a, was it with a trade press? They they canceled the, the contract. It was actually an, uh, an academic press okay. in which I was, I had actually written the book and it was about wrongful convictions <laughs> and, and how to help others learn how to do that work. Uh, so now that's gone. And you're right. I, my literary agent of uh, about 16 years gave me about 20 seconds on the phone 
before she basically dismissed me as a, as her um, client. And even though she knew none of the facts, she just saw what she saw online. But it was, you know, it, it's very much like being, you know, Quasimodo in the village, which is, you know, nobody um, gives you the time of day. You are uh, immediately assumed guilty by virtue of whatever's online. And that's the end of it. That's that's the uh, the cancel culture that we live in today, where, you know, people are assumed uh, guilty before they have to try to prove their innocence. Although I have to say, in my case, you know, how do you prove a negative that you didn't do something? Did you ever have contact with reporters who were amplifying all these groundless charges? And actually, what you implied was that the way they wrote about the charges made the charges sound a lot worse than they actually were. Oh, absolutely. Did, did, did any of the reporters, did you have contact with them either before or afterwards? Well, it's a, it's a good question. First of all, my lawyers told me to honor the what was supposed to be a confidential process with the university uh, as they were looking into this. So I was not supposed yeah. to be, you know, uh, talking with the media, even though the accusers were attacking me in the media as we, as this was all going on. And it was it was brutal. Uh, and in fact, I mean, there was one instance where a former student of mine who will remain nameless who had tried to get a job with me at the center that I ran, unfortunately, we didn't have an opening, wrote some of these very stories uh, and, you know, with the, uh, that were so sort of absolutely uh, devastating and terrible. And uh, what's so, so crazy about this, too, is that, you know, the, some of these stories were based on just anonymous uh, accusations. So we have no idea who was saying it and whether, you know, you know, they had any, you know, sort of like agenda and so forth. But the reporters went ahead and published it anyway. Alec, isn't this a violation of that Society of Editors Code of Ethics to publish anonymous without even any kind of corroboration? Well, I got to tell you, I think it's a violation of just basic decency. But I have to tell you that since I was a, an investigative reporter at the Washington Post, that would never fly. In other words, you, I mean, I, I actually talked to my students about this, which is that the, the consequence of putting out, you know, such vitriolic and negative things about people have tremendous consequences. I actually talked to them about this. That it, there are people who have killed themselves over things that have been said about them online. You know, children have killed themselves, politicians, you know, you name it, all sorts of individuals. Uh, but the world we live in today is such that the media isn't what it used to be. And that is to say, they will publish virtually any uh, accusation, any rumor, uh, if they if they want to. And that's, um, I think it's very dangerous, because in my day, you had to corroborate, you had to make sure that there was some sort of real concrete foundation before you put that kind of information out, because you can't take it back. And it's especially true now, you know, I, I sort of talk about this being the gift that keeps uh, giving, because no matter where I am, no matter how much time is elapsed it's it's always there and i, I always sort of joke that uh, my only salvation is if i move to a you know tropical island where they have no internet and don't speak english but even you know i mean it's just yeah. did has anyone at northwestern contacted you no you don't have to name any names it has anyone said this was really bad it should never have happened well i don't want to get anybody i don't want to get anybody in, in trouble but i can tell you that i've heard from a number of people uh Student, former students and others uh, associated with the university who thought that what happened uh, to me was terrible. But I, you know, frankly, for one, I told them not to say anything because I knew what would happen if they uh, 
you know, stood up for me when all this was happening, which is that they would get in deep trouble. Um, but I, you know, and, and to this day, I still hear from former students who are, you know, so uh, deeply um, angry about what happened to me. I, you know, talked to my daughter about it because she's uh, she's only uh, uh, 14 now, but she's angry about it as, in, in, as well. And I told her that I, I don't want my life to be ruled by anger and that I do believe in forgiveness and in compassion. It's a part of my faith and that um, and I'm OK with that, like that. That's how I want to live my life. And I'm not going to spend the rest of my life being ruled by, you know, desires for retribution or to be consumed by anger. I don't want to live that way. We, well, I'll, I'll tell our listeners, we didn't get into the uh, uh, the faith elements uh, in the book, but I, I encourage people to, to take a look. There's much more, including a, a, an important trip you made to Oklahoma during this period and what, what that meant for everything. But uh, the book is Aftermath, When It Felt Like Life Was Over But Wasn't. Thank you, Alec Klein. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.